This is the Kavnis HR Podcast, and we want you to be great every day. Join us as we transform the human resources outsourcing industry while we talk to small business owners, founders, and people in tech, startup, and HR spaces. Now, please welcome your host, Jason Kavnis. Hello, and welcome to the Kavnis HR Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Kavnis. Our guest today is Adam Heberer. Adam, are you ready to be great today? I am. Adam was born in the state of Ohio. And he went on to, to graduate from the U- University of Denver. He then studied law at Pepperdine School of Law. After graduation, Adam worked at a small firm practice, practicing civil litigation and worker, workers' compensation law. He started, started his own law firm, Heber Law PLLC in, in Los Angeles, focusing on counseling startups and small business. He later moved his firm to Washington, D.C., and changed the focus to technology companies starting up or looking to expand. In 2014, he moved his family to Austin, Texas, and decided to go in-house, first at, at Current LLC, and then, his, and then at his current company, NSS Labs. He's married to his wife, Jessica, and they have two children, and they are active parent, foster parents of 12 kids in the Austin area. Before we get started, let's talk about your, your foster care program. How did that get started? That's a real interesting story, I believe. Yeah, thanks, Jason. So um, I think my wife and I kind of organically, uh, both on our own and then together, it was something that we wanted to do based on our childhoods growing up. It wasn't really a possibility in LA and then DC. It was just too time consuming and the the environment just wasn't right for it. But once we moved down to Austin, we actually had a chance meeting with somebody who was a foster parent, got some more information on it and just decided to pull the trigger. It was very organic. Um, We went through the, uh, the classes, the certification process, and then very shortly thereafter, um, we were taking our first foster child out of the hospital after being born, and it's, it's been a heck of a ride. That, that first foster child, we actually ended up adopting, um, and he's about to turn three next month. Uh, so we've, we've had 12 children overall, and we have a 14-year-old right now who's probably going to be a permanent member of the family as well. So it's definitely been a remarkable journey. So on average, how long do the kids stay with you? So it's, it's interesting. I, I think the, um, the average that the, uh, the department uh, will tell you, whether it's um, state of Texas here or probably a state agency in, in another state, generally about a year from removal of the child to the final disposition of the case. Uh, we've seen that, you know, in, a, in our experience, it, it can be longer than that. It, you know, the case can be continued. There can be circumstances that allow it to go on past that one-year date. Or other family can come kind of out of the woodwork uh, before that year and we'll decide to step in and take the children. So uh, it really runs the gamut. I mean, I think our average is probably around eight months to a year, but our current foster child has been here for about a year and a half. So you just never know what what you're going to get. I know that I would guess it has to be hard mostly for you and your wife because I'm sure you, you grow a bond with these kids and then, you know, they leave you or something else happens. And I'm sure, I mean, how do you deal with that? Yeah, it, it can be tough. I think um, we went into it kind of with open eyes, knowing knowing that that was going to be the case uh, in a lot of these uh, in a lot of these foster situations. I think what what we've done and what we try to do is really hang on to the fact that even in sometimes the short amount of time that we've had a child, we we've still managed to make quite an impact. For instance, we 
had another newborn that we had only for about, you know, I think six to eight months and eventually went back to his, his biological mom. But in that time, we found out that he had some cognitive impairment. It later turned out to be a very severe kind of form of autism. But we were able to get him into physical therapy, um, occupational therapy. We were really kind of in a position to get him on the right track so that his mom could kind of continue that as he as he grew. And, you know, that's just one of those things where we can kind of look at and say, yeah, you know, we kind of set set this kid up hopefully right um, for where wherever life takes him. And we still maintain contact in a lot of those cases. Um, so it's not as though we're, we're totally out of that child or family's life. I was asking, do the, do the parents ever come back to you and know, like, thank you and keep in contact with you? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, that child I was just speaking of, we are in contact with his his mother, uh, who's you know expressed gratitude, and and we've been there for her whenever whenever appropriate, and we can we can kind of give her support with our current child. Same thing. Um, it's it. This is going to be a long one. It's, it's going to be something kind of akin to open adoption. Um, open adoption isn't a possibility here in Texas, but that's kind of what we're moving to. So. We're certainly going to have that type of relationship, but on the you know flip side of that coin, you also are going to have parents who you know fully resent the fact that you know you were taking care of their child, and um, there's always going to be that sort of relationship possibility as well. And and we're aware of that we're pragmatic, we understand it, so just kind of you know try and meet in the middle, I guess. Well, Adam, I don't want to, I don't want to thank you for doing what you're doing. I mean, you're making a great impact on a lot of people's lives. That's a great thing, and I want to thank you for that. Well, thank you. It's very rewarding. So Adam, next, talk about what's going on in your life right now. What are you working on? So it's actually very exciting, uh, Jason. I am in-house counsel for a cybersecurity company called NSS Labs based here in Austin. And what we do as a company, we don't provide um, cybersecurity solutions uh, like you would find with, you know, Symantec or CrowdStrike or one of those companies. But we help those companies make their products better. And we do so by independently testing um, cybersecurity products to make sure that they're kind of catching everything that they need to. So a really exciting area of business and certainly a very exciting area of law. Um, so we're, we're hard at work every day kind of trying to make sure that the infrastructure of our company, the relationships that we have with other companies are sound and every day is something new, something new and exciting all the time. I know you do a lot of work with the nonprofits. You're really passionate about that. I think that's a, a business organization that would get, get a short shift, you know, because they need HR, they need services too. Do, do you think that is because nonprofits don't do a good enough job of getting out in the world and telling people they need or why is that, do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. In fact, my wife is um, is the controller for a nonprofit. Um, so I can speak to this firsthand. She was working in D.C. in pretty much exclusively nonprofit. Uh, towards the end of her career in that in that city, you know, you raise a good a good question. I think the problem that you get with nonprofits is uh, you're either on one or the other end of the spectrum. Either you're brand new and you've got this amazing idea, which is absolutely commendable, and you've acted on it and you've started a nonprofit, but the fact is that it, it, it's tough to start anything, a business, a nonprofit, uh, a lemonade stand for that matter, you know? So you don't really have, or a lot of people, I shouldn't cast such a wide net, but a lot of people don't have the resources 
to know how to grow and scale. And that's something you see not only in nonprofits, but in for-profit business as well. And it really becomes difficult to kind of get out of a rut that you've created for yourself from formation. On the other end of that, you have the more established nonprofit organizations who have been around for a long time. And they're kind of falling into a complacency, I want to say for lack of a better word, where the things that have worked continually for years or decades um, are the things that, you know, they think are still going to work. And the fact of the matter is times have changed, you know, especially when you're in a business environment or in a, I should say, when you're in, in a, a city economy, you know, like here in Austin, it's very liberal. You know, you kind of have to have to cater to that if you want to bring in the best and the brightest talent, because frankly, they're going to be, you know, there's going to be a lot of competition. Um, so yeah, I think you raised a good point. You know, it's reaching out is certainly one of those issues. But I think having, having the, the consideration to actually bring that talent in is another matter entirely. There are plenty of passionate people out there. There are plenty of passionate people who would, you know, at the drop of a hat, love to work as an accountant, as a project manager, as a fundraiser. But you've got to look at it just like your business competing with all the other businesses out there uh, for that talent. Uh, it's, it's really supply and demand. So I think upping the level of kind of awareness that you're here, this is what we're doing, this is what we're looking for, as well as this is what we can offer you. Not only, and, and they have that benefit of saying, we're doing something that you're very passionate about, that's very close to your heart. Um, and on top of that, look at this amazing work environment that we can offer you that's going to marry those two things. So if you can get those two, you know, the, um, the passion and the environment, I think you're, you're a long way in, toward, in, in terms of attracting talent. Do you think another challenge might be that, you know, most people just presume that oh, nonprofits pay less, a whole lot less than the regular companies? Yeah, I think that's certainly going to be uh, kind of a stigma, whether, whether true or not. You know, uh, again, I think going back to it, if, if you're creating a buzz in your city, and we all know those nonprofits that are kind of hip and trendy, people are going to judge you not only by the fact that you're a nonprofit, but they're also going to see, oh, wow, you have these, these kind of cool headquarters or I see you doing this out in the, uh, in the community. You know, I think at, at a certain point, there's going to have to be that trade-off. But if, you're, if it's kind of an anonymous nonprofit that nobody really knows about, um, you're going to have less to go on. So then I'm sure that for a lot of people, that stigma, whether true or not true, is going to play a bigger role. Very good points, Adam. Next, tell us about a time that you were successful in the past, what you learned from the success, and what we can learn from the success that you had. I think, and I'll start with the lesson in this, and the lesson for me throughout my career, um, and certainly counseling clients, now being in-house, just having one client, but you know, numerous stakeholders, communication is key. And going into any communication that you have with somebody, an entity, a person, with no prejudice with no preconceived notions is paramount. And one of the times when I was a, a newer attorney, um, I was negotiating on behalf of my client and my, um, my counterpart who I was going to be negotiating uh, this particular contract with, huge company, 
very formidable, very scary to go in there and start demanding things. So I decided to do what I thought was was best for my client, which was go and, and kind of puff up my chest a little bit and be the be the tough guy. And negotiations kind of broke down pretty quick. And at the time I thought, yeah, that's the, they're, you know, they're slow walking us. That's the way they're going to do it. They're the big guys on the block. Come to find out, I have a couple of conversations, just one-on-one because these were in-person negotiations with a huge team, um, which was another reason I kind of went in there and was trying to uh, assert my authority. Um, Had a couple of conversations with just an individual on the team. And we talked about what had gone wrong during the negotiations and um, he made some comments that made me rethink my my position, my tack. And through his persuasion, we we were able to get back in and have a seat at the table to renegotiate or to to have another round of negotiations. And this time, taking his advice, you know, I went in there as as, as Mr. Nice Guy, and wouldn't you know it. You know, by the end of these negotiations, not only do we have kind of a memorandum of understanding and we're on our way towards a fully executed, wonderful contract for my client, but we're all buddies and we're going out to have, you know, tacos afterwards. I think it highlights the, the fact that, you know, it, if you focus on how you communicate, um, how you treat people and how you message, you can really get far in whatever you're trying to do. It, it's so key in what I do. And certainly it's, it's a paramount importance for, for an attorney. But I think in any walk of life, even outside of business, just being able to uh, kind of with compassion and, and being nice, but at the same time being persuasive, get your message across is a huge, huge skill to have. And that's great that you're able to be open-minded and take that advice. You know, most people like to oh, always, I'm doing it my way wouldn't even listen to anything. So that's very good on your part. So Nick, talk about the time that you failed in the past, what you learned and what we can learn from this failure. Oh my gosh, Jason. Well, that, that time was almost a failure. I think that was, that was about as, as close to a colossal failure as thankfully I've gotten in my career. But look, there have been many, many times when going into into a professional environment when we think things are going to go one way and they they go the other way. They just get all pear-shaped. And I, I think, you know, it's important for us as, as professionals to understand that, that it's going to happen. And I think, you know, better than, than kind of giving you an example, a very specific example of that, I think just a general, a, a general lesson that I've learned in my career and, and in my life outside of that, being a foster dad, being a parent, being a husband, um, as well as being an attorney, is being able to take failure for what it is not not impute any any wholly negative characteristics to oneself and say you know mark this up in in the loss column learn from it which is the most important thing and then go out there and try better next time and i think that's the best that we can do as 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 humans as people um let alone professionals and that's you know, what I, what I strive for every day. I don't know if I always achieve it, but that's certainly my goal every time I come up a little short. I think the point to remember, I've heard somebody say this, that even when you fail, you have to remember that you, you're not a failure yourself. You might have failed at that event, but you yourself are not a failure. You got to keep that in mind. Some people have a hard time doing that, I think. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. Next, you already talked about this a little bit, but expand some on how you um, add value and help people to solve problems. Yeah, so I think um, if you're coming to an attorney in the first place, um, and certainly when you're in-house counsel, you're going to have a very discreet set of issues that that people are going to bring you. 
Even in, in an in-house setting, however, there are typically so many moving parts. When you're thinking about, for example, launching a new product, you know, messaging a certain new offering that you're bringing to the marketplace, um, these things seem very, very simple. Harder to do, but they seem kind of simple in, in terms of, of what needs to be done. A lot of times, though, you really need to look closer and see, are we exposed here? Uh, is there any risk in doing what we plan on doing? And, I, and where I come in and the value that I hope I bring is to give the decision makers all the information they need to make an informed decision. A lot of times the information that they need isn't readily apparent. Take, for example, a new product offering. It could be a phenomenal product or service. It could serve an absolute need in the marketplace. But there could be some issues such as, let's say, licensing. Are there things that we're putting into this product or service um, that are licensed for one thing and maybe not for resale? They're, you know, how you market it. There's certainly issues with marketing. These things kind of get pushed by the wayside in the exuberance of bringing a new product to market. Um, same thing with starting a business. You know, these things are all very exciting and we tend to kind of ignore um, the little hiccups as we, as we encounter them and say, we'll get to them later. When the right time to get to them is before you take action. Really hard to fix after the fact. So again, where I come in is just trying to gather as much information as I can, kind of package my assessment of either the risk, the reward, any other, any other considerations we should be thinking about, and then delivering that to all the stakeholders so that they can make an informed decision about how to proceed. Adam, I, I know back in your days, uh, advising startups and still today, I know you've probably been asked this question a thousand times and I know each situation is different, but what's your advice on companies when they ask, you know, should I remain an LLC, should I incorporate in my home state, incorporate in Delaware? What's the advice on that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I would love to give everybody a blanket answer and say, no, no, no. The best play, you just just do a, uh, an LLC in Lexington, Kentucky, and you're all good. Um, unfortunately, it's not that easy. It's always going to be a case-by-case -case scenario. You know, what are you selling? What are your risks? How many employees do you want to have? Are you going to be issuing stock? Things like that. These are all the things that a competent attorney is going to need to know to be able to advise you on where and as what entity to incorporate. So, and that goes with pretty much any legal issue as well. And trust me, I get, I get all of them all the time, whenever I go out. But a lot of times it, it is so highly fact dependent that this is why we, we say, you know, you should really, you should really speak to a lawyer. We're not trying to help our fellow attorneys out. Yes. It's, uh, it's because that these things are just so fact dependent, so detailed that, that it really gets, gets difficult to do kind of a, a broad sweeping answer for. Next, talk about someone who's helped you out in the past and how they helped you. Oh my goodness. Um, I'll speak of two people off the top of my head. Um, so when I was still in law school in Los Angeles, I was working for a firm um, that was later kind of swallowed up by a larger firm, but I was just a, like a 2L, 3L, you know, the dime a dozen doing clerking, you know, the errand boy of the office and a, um, a later partner kind of took me under his wing and really let me get hands on with the corporate side of the law. And it was the first exposure I had to it. It was something I had in my mind that 
that I thought could be interesting. But it wasn't until that time that I actually got to see, you know, how do negotiations work? You know, what are the parts of a contract? I mean, you can learn about offer acceptance and consideration all day long in, in law school, but until you get in there and actually see, you know, how a contract is put together and kind of the, uh, the human interaction, the human element, you really don't have much to go on. So um, this attorney, Jeffrey Glassman, really took me under his wing, really allowed me to get my hands dirty, kind of threw me in over my head a couple of times, which, which I think helped out a lot as well, and really put me on the, on the path to becoming a corporate attorney. And, you know, who knows where I end up if, if that didn't happen, if I had gotten taken under the wing of, of a, you know, bankruptcy attorney, maybe things would have turned out different. But as it stands, uh, here I am today as an in-house counsel and the other person, you know, and I'm not going to say this to get brownie points, but my wife is such an amazing woman. Um, I, I respect her more than anybody. She is much more, I'm, I'm very animated and I'm very loud. And even though I'm much more of a honey guy than vinegar, I, I can sometimes be very direct in my dealings um, at work and sometimes outside of work. She, on the other hand, is the yin to my yang and really balances that out and serves as kind of a, a neutral advisor, I would say, or a neutral listener when I'm recounting the, the happenings of my day and can give me really honest feedback. You know, well, maybe, maybe you kind of overstepped there a little bit, Adam. Maybe that wasn't the best thing to say. And I would say a good 25% of the time I take her advice. And then the other 75%, she's right. I'm just too proud to. Um, but no, she's, she's been such an amazing partner in more ways than one. And yeah, I look to her all the time for, uh, for guidance. She's the smartest woman I know. That's great to hear. Nick, tell us something about yourself that most people don't know. Of course, you have your family, your wife. Your close friends know this, but most people don't know this about Adam. You know, a lot of people don't know this. I mean, I am not the the typical, you know, suit and tie attorney. I live and work in Austin. You know, I spent 10 years in L.A. Uh, so you can see me with my tattoos and my beard and everything. And I think that alone kind of strikes people as odd, seeing an attorney kind of gallivanting around with, with those things going on. But I think one thing that they, they wouldn't guess is that my kind of career aspirations coming out of high school in Ohio, not to, not to go to a great university and then go to a law school and, and join this prestigious lineage of, of learned attorneys, uh, it was to become a professional snowboarder. So I actually went to, uh, to school in Colorado my first two years. I chose my college based solely on the fact that it was 30 minutes away from Crested Butte, which at that time was hosting the Winter X Games. So, yeah, that didn't work out so well, but I did have a constitutional law professor who put me on the track to becoming a Juris Doctor. So do you still snowboard today? I don't, and I wish I had time. I did, certainly all throughout college. I was in Colorado, and then even in law school, I had season passes to to Bear Mountain, which is about two hours away from LA. But yeah, not since law school, unfortunately, just life has kind of gotten in the way. Although I will say that, that if given the opportunity, and my wife is very nervous about this possibility, but if given the opportunity, I'm sure if I set foot on a mountain with a snowboard attached to my feet, I would be able to do at least 98% of the things I used to be able to do on a snowboard when I was 23. Well, I can see why your wife's worried. Yeah, absolutely, right? I know you work for NSS Labs now, but how involved are you with the Austin startup community? 
Frankly, not as, as involved as I would like to be. When, when I was in D.C., that was a huge part of my life, talking to startups, not just networking for my own firm, but really trying to help people who are trying to start a business. It's something I'm absolutely passionate about. Unfortunately, the other thing that we became passionate about, which is fostering children, really kind of cut into that time. So having one client as well sounds great um, and doesn't seem like as much of a time commitment, but let me tell you, when you're not doing billable hours, you are available all the time. So certainly something I would love to get back into and plan to. The Austin community, I will say, is is a very close-knit one. It's a small town in a big city. You feel like you kind of know everybody. So yeah, certainly something I, I look forward to getting back into um, and, and something I love doing. Adam, we're coming to the close of our talk. Can you provide any social media platforms for yourself or NSS Labs to pass on to our listeners? Uh, if you'd like to, if you, if you, if you happen to be a cybersecurity company, um, uh, NSLslabs.com. Um, otherwise, uh, no, I just hope everybody out there, uh, just continues to, uh, to be great. And uh, yeah, no, thank you, Jason, for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Adam. And before we go, any last words of advice or wisdom to pass on to the listeners, whether they're trying to start a business or working on a nonprofit or think about getting into foster care? Yeah, I would say, you know, oh, it sounds so pat, but I would, Let's say we have two ears and one mouth. Listen, listen, listen. Um, you're gonna learn a lot that way, and you know it just aids in what I think is the most important talent you can have, which is effective communication. Thank you, Adam. Thank you very much for being our guest on our podcast. I really appreciate it. And to our listeners, thank you for your time, and remember to be great every day. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Cadmus HR. For more exclusive content, as well as your free copy of HR Laws, be sure to visit CadmusHR.com or connect to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Cadmus HR or Jason Cadmus HR on Snapchat. Thanks again and be great every day.